Well, let's let's continue in in prayer then. Um, and again, thank you, Bill. Appreciate you sharing with us, encouraging us. Father, it is a blessed thing to be together as your people and to be encouraged by one another's faith, by one another's joy. Each one's life is different. Each one's challenges are different. Father, we don't all share identical struggles and burdens, challenges in our life, and yet there is a a commonality in human life in this world. There is no struggle or difficulty, but what is common to man. But we're grateful that you have given us the privilege, the resource of bearing the burdens of life together. You have not left us alone. You minister to us, you encourage us, you build us up through the ministration of your spirit through the scriptures, through the, the resource of, of prayer and meditation, but, Father, also through the shared ministration of the body of Christ. And I, I pray that we would truly find preciousness in your church, that we would see the immense privilege and the rich gift that is the body of Christ and that we would take seriously our privilege and responsibility in building up one another, that we would labor to see each one grow up in Christ and that we would be eager recipients of the ministry of our brothers and sisters You have not purpose to save us as individuals and have us live individual lives uh, in order to find an individual heavenly hope, but your goal is to form a new human organism with Christ as the head. We don't do life in Christ alone. And that's not only the truth of the matter, it's it's a glorious truth. And again, I just pray, Father, that we would find a true preciousness in one another, that we would bear each other on our hearts and minds, that we would draw upon one another, that we would unburden ourselves with one another, that there would be a true transparency, accountability, intimacy amongst us, that we would live out authentically this truth of new creation in Christ. So we pray that as we continue together this morning, that you will lead us, that you will um, inform and instruct us, not just for the sake of our knowledge, but for the sake of our faith, for the sake of our joy, for the sake of our steadfastness, for the sake of our peace that would surpass all understanding. So meet us in this time as we continue our worship together, for we do gather in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, last time we looked at the Isaac story, and I just mentioned to you all that uh, that story is very brief in the flow of Genesis. And Isaac is essentially the, uh, the baton passer between Abraham and Jacob. And Jacob really has the central place in the second half of the book of Genesis for various reasons. Uh, But certainly one of them is that these scriptures were written for the sake of the people of Israel. As a point of reference for them, as a point of self-understanding, as a point of uh, their own encouragement, their own persevering faith. And in a very real way, Jacob's own experiences are the experiences of the nation. And so as we read the Jacob story, which takes us through the balance of Genesis, we should be reading it in the way that, that the sons of Israel would have looked at that and seen really in, in a proleptic way, in a, in a previous way, their own experiences, their own life with God carried out in Jacob's life. And the way in which God interacted with him, the way in which God sustained him, the way in which God prospered him, all of those things were to be an encouragement to Israel. 
The struggles that he had were the struggles that they had. Even the issues of exile and oppression, the things that Israel endured through all of that, they could look back at their forefather Jacob and they could see a God who persevered with him. So as I say in the notes, Jacob's story is the primary reference point for the nation of Israel in their self-identity, in their sense of their self-understanding, their relationship with God, even their role in God's purposes. Israel had a very specific purpose within God's purpose for the world. And in the Jacob story, we we see those things fleshed out. But there are three particular things by way of introduction that I wanted to mention today. The first is that in Jacob, we see in a very focused way this reality of Israel's election. And I don't want to belabor this point, but we often, when we hear the word election, we think in terms of personal salvation, who's saved, who isn't saved. Am I elect? Am I not elect? But in the broader biblical sense, election is a functional idea. It's a determination and a choice on God's part for the sake of a given purpose that he has for an individual or for an entity. Election is a functional category, not a salvific category per se. And so we see in Israel's election, God choosing a people essentially choosing Abraham and his descendants for the sake of a particular role in the world, that Israel will be the one through whom all the families of the earth will be blessed. Israel will be the instrument of God's restoration of the created order. And the people of Israel were to understand themselves in that way. Part of their failure was that they didn't. Rather than seeing themselves as the light to the nations, they saw themselves as standing above and apart from the nations. And that's a different discussion. But Israel's election was a matter of divine prerogative, not anything in the nation, not anything in Abraham. It was a calling out of darkness into light, but again, not in salvific terms, but in functional terms. The choice of Abraham for the sake of the world. The second thing that we see in in the story of Jacob is the nature of Israel's distinction. Jacob is very much distinguished amongst uh, the the uh, Abrahamic people, just as Isaac himself was distinguished. So as Israel would look at the Jacob story, they would see more in a, in a clearer way their own sense of their unique distinction in the world. Chosen to be a distinctive people. Well, distinctive in what way? Chosen according to God's purpose and power, not because of anything in them, not because of anything that they could accomplish in themselves, not because they were better, greater, more numerous. But ultimately, in Jacob, Israel became Yisrael, and we'll be looking at that today. Yisrael having a, an ambiguous meaning, it can either mean God prevails or he prevails with God. And we'll see in the Jacob story that both of those are true. So Israel speaks more to a principle and a purpose than to a national people. Jacob became Yisrael through a very extraordinary event. And the people of Israel were the corporatizing of that. The one who prevails with God because God prevails in them. And through them. And then the third thing that we see specifically with the Jacob story is God's habitation, his dwelling in relation to Israel. We saw with Abraham and with Isaac, uh, God in particular associated himself with the land of Canaan. Abraham came to Canaan. He started building altars from Shechem in the north down to Beersheba in the south testifying that this is Yahweh's land. This is where the covenant God dwells. And when Abraham left the land, he didn't build altars. He came back to his altars in Canaan. You see the same thing with Isaac. But with Jacob, you see uh, a shifting in that, and it becomes clear for the first time that God's habitation deals with his relationship with his people, not a location per se. 
And it doesn't mean that God didn't set apart Canaan. He did. But we'll see in the Jacob story that ultimately the issue of cohabitation or God's dwelling is a matter of him being with his people. And that will ultimately come to its high point in Jesus himself, if you think of John 4, right? Where the Samaritan woman says, our fathers say that we should worship God here on Mount Gerizim in Samaria where this altar This sanctuary has been built. You Jews say that we should worship God in Jerusalem. Which is it? And Jesus says an hour is coming and now is. When neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, but in spirit and in truth. So already in the Jacob story, you begin to see this idea of what really is the nature of God's habitation with his people. So what I want to do today, and I mentioned last time that I want to split this up a little bit more than I did uh, when I did this series way back when, and deal with the particulars of it in a little bit more of a focused way. And, and again, just by way of reminder of last time, I mentioned how important it is to read the story in the light of not just the people, but the circumstances and the places and what happens at those places. Because... Even the names associated with the places speak to something very important about the significance of those places and the circumstances surrounding them. So today I want to deal with the Bethel episode and the Haran episode. Next time we'll look at Mahanaim and Peniel. Uh, But all of these ideas at this point in the Jacob story have to do with his own exile from the land. And Israel would have seen that aspect of Jacob's life in terms of their own exile. Jacob is driven from the land, right? He leaves the land, and he's in exile for 20 years in Haran. But the circumstances of that exile, both as he's leaving and then also the result of that 20 years in Haran, become very informative to Israel's own sense of its its own history and its own expectations of its relationship with God. And ultimately, all of that, as it comes to find its focal point in Jesus himself, helps to inform our understanding and our sense of the significance of these principles So we all, I think, if you've been keeping up with the story, and I hope you keep reading through um, these these sections in Genesis, it's very important to kind of keep going back through it and, and look for these clues, look for the things that are emphasized, and build a sense of the story in your own mind. Uh, but this exile from Canaan, as it pertains to Jacob, was grounded fundamentally in his being identified as the covenant heir, Right? There were two pieces to that. There were the obtainment of the birthright. And in the ancient world, and still in certain cultures, the firstborn has the right of primogeniture. The the family name, the family status, uh, even the majority of the property rights go to the firstborn, firstborn son. And we talked about how God, in the process of this election, the choosing of an individual for a function, he upsets that normal order, showing that he's not drawing on natural criteria, but his own determination. So God had told, um, he had made it clear, even while the twins, Jacob and Esau, are still in the womb of their mother, that this is going to be an upsetting of the natural order. The older will serve the younger. Two nations are in your womb. And they will have a certain conflict with with one another, but the younger will be the one who will have the preeminence. Now, the way that that came about was through, you know, as I said last time, selfishness, pride, deception, subterfuge, foolishness, lack of discernment, all kinds of things that are associated with human failing. But nonetheless, God's purposes prevailed through that. God's purposes were worked out through all of that unrighteousness, both in Jacob obtaining the birthright from Esau and then also in obtaining his father's blessing, was like, which was like the second piece. The birthright was the right that Jacob obtained, but his father's blessing was what certified him as then being the firstborn in that sense, having that right of primogeniture. But as a result of that, Esau determined that he was going to kill his brother. 
And so when Rebecca found that out, she essentially went to Isaac and, and she uh, presented this under the guise of, I don't want my son to marry one of the daughters of Heth, right? Send him away to find a wife. Send him to my brother's house. So Isaac said, okay, and, and they took uh, Jacob and, and they sent him away to Haran, to Rebekah's brother's house, Laban. So he goes, and as he's leaving, he comes, and we'll read this in, in uh, Genesis 28. Let's turn to this and read this passage. It says, So Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said to him, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Padan Aram, which is Haran, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father. And from there, take to yourself a wife from the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. And may God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give to you the blessing of Abraham to you and to your descendants with you, that you may possess the land of your sojournings, which God gave to Abraham. So he's being sent away from the land, but the blessing of his father is ultimately concerning the place that he's leaving. It's a kind of veiled um, promise that this God will bring you back here. He will give you this land that he has covenanted to Abraham. So Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan Aram uh, to Laban, son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob and Esau. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take to himself a wife from there, and that he had blessed him and charged him, saying, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. While Esau is so irritated and vexed with the whole situation that he decides he's going to provoke his parents, the best he can. He knows that, you know, his father has a problem with this, so he's going to get back at his father. He saw the daughters of Canaan displeased his father, and so he went to Ishmael, his uncle, right, and married, besides the wives that he had, Mahaloth, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. He's marrying outside of the covenant, which Esau is saying, if I'm not this covenant heir, then I might as well just join myself to Ishmael's house. But as Jacob departs from Beersheba, and it's interesting that he leaves from Beersheba, which was the focal point of Abraham and Isaac's foothold in the land. So the text wants you to see that he is leaving the Abrahamic homestead, as it were. He headed towards Haran and came to a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head and lay down in that place. And he had a dream and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. Now, this wouldn't be a ladder like we know, but more like a ziggurat, a stepped kind of um, structure. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it. And here it uses the, the word Yahweh, the covenant name. It, it, the story wants you to see that this is the covenant God who is speaking to I, uh, Jacob. And he said, I am Yahweh, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. Reiterating uh, uh, J Isaac's promise to him. Isaac's blessing. Your descendants shall be like the dust of the earth. You shall spread out to the west, the east, the north, and the south. And in you and your descendants, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Well, that's reiterating the, the basics of the Abrahamic promise, land, seed, and blessing, right? But now there's an enlargement. And behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on its top. And he called the name of that place 
Beth Ale, House of God. However, previously the name of the city had been Luz. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and keep me on this journey that I take, if he will indeed do what he has said, will give me food to eat and garments to wear, and I return to my father's house in safety as he has pledged, then he will indeed be my God. And this stone which I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you have given me, I will surely give a tenth to you. So just a couple of points about that story as it kind of builds the case again for uh, Jacob's departure from the land. The first thing is, again, that God has said, even as you are leaving the land, I will go with you. I will be with you. The blessings of the covenant will come to you even outside of the land of Canaan. Well, why is that important in the ancient world? And you see this in the scriptures, but in the ancient world, gods were associated with people, but in a particular locale. Gods were the gods of areas. And here you have a new idea, which is a God who is the God of a people not bound to a specific kingdom or region or nation. So there's an enlarging of this and ultimately pointing to the idea that this God is the God of all men. Israel Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. The point of that confession is not that God in his interior being is one being, but that he is the one God. He is the God of all creation. He's the God of all men. He's the God of all nations. He's the God of all creation. And so this God has now promised to Jacob, I will go with you wherever you go, and the blessings of my presence, the blessings of my promise, uh, the blessings of my covenant will go with you wherever you happen to be. So Jacob then names that place, that experience that he has in a dream, these angels coming and going, and it really is speaking to this converging of heaven and earth, a place where the heavenly realm and the earthly realm come together, and we'll talk more about that. So he names that place Bethel, house of God, saying, surely the Lord is in this place. And as I say, this wasn't just him simply acknowledging the omnipresence of God. Oh, gee, God is everywhere. That wasn't really what he was saying. He's expressing his astonishment that this God of his fathers had met him in this lonely place as he's leaving the land. Far from his father's home and committing himself to his welfare wherever he went and whatever his circumstances. That's his astonishment. And that's even the point of his awe. The fear is an idea of awe. God is encountering him in a way that, that Jacob hadn't known before, a way that enlarges his understanding of who this God is. And so Jacob makes his own vow to God. God vows to him and he makes his own God to him or his own vow to God. And by that, he wasn't testing God. It can read that way. If you'll do this, then I'll do that. If you scratch my back, then I'll scratch yours. And, you know, maybe we even naturally tend to want to read it that way. Okay, you've said you'll do this. If you do it, then I'll do this. He wasn't putting him to the test. He was saying that when you have performed what you have promised, then you will have shown yourself to truly be who you say you are. When you have done this, you will have demonstrated your integrity shown yourself to be the God of the covenant, the God who keeps his word, who keeps covenant. And in that way, my faith and my devotion, my commitment will be vindicated. You will show yourself to be true. So he's not setting up a condition for his obedience. He's saying he's, he's leaving the land in the confidence. When you have done this, then you will have shown yourself to be this God and you will vindicate my faith. And that's what ends up happening as he comes back from Haran. So Bethel then becomes central to Jacob's 
relationship with God. Just as Beersheba had been central to Abraham and Isaac's relationship, Bethel becomes the centerpiece. It's the point from which Jacob leaves the land. It's the place to which he returns when he returns after 20 years in Haran. Bethel becomes most associated with Jacob and his relationship with God. Well, if that's the case, then we should be seeing that relationship between God and Jacob in light of Bethel and what it represents, what happened there, what it revealed to Jacob concerning his relationship with God. So Beersheba, in a very real way, signified God's faithfulness to establish his covenant people in the promised land. The tamarisk tree That was Abraham's first foothold in the land, the first actual piece of ground, you know, with his well there that that he had permanent hold on. It was the promise of the possession of the land. Bethel, on the other hand, signified God's promise to be the God of his people, being with them and upholding them wherever they might find themselves. Beersheba focused on God will indeed establish you in this land. And we know from Hebrews that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob essentially lived as strangers in the land, right? They wandered. They never inherited it. It would come later. So Beersheba speaks to one aspect of God's relationship with his people in relation to the land. Bethel speaks to something that enlarges on that and shows that even though God has covenanted a particular place, he is the God of his people wherever they find themselves. And that's true of us as well. You know, people often think they have to go into a church building to pray or whatever, you know, and even Israel's life with God was very much centered in Jerusalem and the temple. And as as N.T. Wright has said, Jesus was a one-man counter-temple movement. He took to himself all of the prerogatives and the meaning and the significance of the temple in Israel's life. And this is very much at the center of John's gospel, right? We'll see that as we close today. So that's the Bethel episode. And then he finds himself in Haran. And what he expected when he, when Rebecca said, go to my brother Laban, go flee from your brother. And when he cools down, then you can come back. I mean, this was expected to be a few days, maybe a few weeks at the most. He ends up being in Haran for 20 years. When he first arrives He makes this agreement with Laban, his uncle, his mother's brother. He makes this agreement to work for him for seven years for his daughter, Rachel. Well, Laban tricks him and gets him to consummate this union with Leah. And and when uh, Jacob is incensed over this, he says, well, it's not our tradition to marry the younger before the older. So I gave you the older instead. And he said, but if you work for me another seven years, then I'll give you Rachel. So he ends up working for him for 14 years to get these two daughters. And then another six years beyond that, taking care of his flocks and his herds. And during that time is when he ends up basically plundering his subjugator. Again, Israel would have read this story through their own circumstance because Jacob, who becomes Israel, goes into exile and he's oppressed and he's mistreated and he's exploited. But he ends up coming out, he ends up leaving with all of the wealth of his subjugator, essentially. And that was to be Israel's circumstance, even all the way back, God promised to Abraham, right? you will come out with many possessions. So you already see in this circumstance uh, a, a kind of presaging of what would be Israel's own experience. The man Israel's experience gets repeated, replicated in the life of the nation descended from him. So Jacob is in Haran. He's working for his uncle. He has these two wives. Leah bears for him four sons. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. And then she stops bearing children. Each one of them has a maid. Leah and Rachel each have a maid servant. And just had been the case with Abraham and Hagar, uh, Jacob takes those two handmaidens as his wives as well. And they each bear two sons for him. 
Rachel's handmaiden bears for him um, uh, Dan and Naphtali, and then the other handmaiden, uh, Gad and Asher. And then Leah has two more sons, Issachar and Zebulon. And through all of this, Rachel, who is the one that Jacob loved, same dynamic again. Abraham loves Sarah. She's barren. Isaac loves Rebecca. She's barren. Jacob loves Rachel. She's barren. And finally, after all of this, she bears a son for Jacob, who is Joseph. And then in the midst of it, they also have a daughter, right? Dinah or Dina. But so he's having these children are coming along through the process. And then we have this kind of weird story. And we'll we'll read part of this. And and I want to help you to see kind of the significance because it is kind of a, a different story. If we pick up in Genesis chapter 30, Verse 25, it says, Now now it came about when Rachel had born Joseph that Jacob said to Laban, Send me away that I may go to my own place, to my own country. Give me my wives, my children, for whom I have served you, and let me depart, for you yourself know my service which I have rendered you. This is now 14 years in. But Laban said to him, If now it pleases you, stay with me. I have divined that the Lord has blessed me on your account. That's another hint of the covenant blessing because God is with Jacob and blessing Jacob. Those who are associated with Jacob are finding themselves blessed. Laban has prospered in Jacob's service. And he said, name your wages. I will give it to you. And he said to him, you know how I have served you and how your cattle have fared with me. You have had li- you had little before I came, and now it has increased to a multitude, and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turn. But now when shall I provide for my own household? So Laban said, what shall I give you? And Jacob said, you shall, gi- you shall not give me anything, but if you will do this one thing for me, I will again pasture and keep your flock. Let me pass through your entire flock today, removing from there every speckled and spotted sheep, every black one among the lambs, the spotted, the speckled among the goats, and th- such shall be my wages. Let me you know, have, claim these as my own and let them bear their own offspring and build up my own wealth in my own flocks and herds. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come concerning my wages. In other words, it'll be easy to see which is mine and which is yours. Because he's tending all of Laban's flocks and herds. And he says, if you give me these, then all who are of this sort will be mine. And then we w- there won't be any argument as to whose is whose. My honesty will answer for me later when you come concerning my wages. Everyone that is not speckled or spotted among the goats, black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be considered stolen. And he said, good, let it be according to your word. And then Laban immediately instructs his sons to separate out all of the sheep and goats that meet that criterion and take them three days journey away. And then he leaves uh, Jacob to tend to the rest of the flocks and the herd. What is he doing? He said, yeah, I'll give you uh, any, any of my herds that bear those kinds of sheep and goats. But all the ones that, that are that way, he's taking away and leaving him to tend to all these that are not that way in the expectation that he'll end up not having. You see what I'm saying? The ones that he's left to tend won't bear mottled and speckled and spotted uh, sheep and goats. So he's already ripping him off. Verse 37, then Jacob took what well, says he put in verse 36, he put a distance of three days journey between himself and Jacob and Jacob fed the rest of Laban's flocks. Then Jacob took fresh rods of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white stripes in them exposing the white which was in the rods. And he set the rods which he had peeled in front of the flocks in the gutters. Now these are the non-striped, non-spotted, non-black. These are the the ones that don't meet the criterion 
of what he had claimed in his deal with Laban. But he sets the rods in front of them in the, the feeding troughs, the watering troughs, where the flocks came to drink and they mated when they came to drink. So the flocks mated by the rods and the flocks brought forth stripes speckled and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and made the flocks face toward the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. And he put his own herds apart and did not put them with Laban's. Moreover, it came about that whenever the stronger of the flock were mating, that Jacob would place the rods in the side of the flock in the gutter so that they mate by the rods, the stronger, the, the more healthy among the flock. But when the flock was feeble, he did not put the rods near them and the feebler were Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. So Jacob, the man became exceedingly prosperous and had large flocks and female and male servants and camels and donkeys. We say, that's a weird story. What's the deal with these rods? What are we to make of that? Well, the key is really in the Hebrew language. Laban, Lavan is his name. It means white. And he takes these poplar and almond rods which when you peel the ba the bark off the wood is white and he and he peels it in a way that these become white striped so in a sense they point to the kinds of animals that he was claiming but also it's a kind of comical play on words idea of how lay of how jacob ends up plundering the wealth of the man who sought to take advantage of him the man whose name means white has his wealth taken from him through the agency of a white thing. And, you know, God does the same thing you see in the prophets where uh, you see it with Jeremiah, you know, where, where what do you see? Jeremiah, look and see. I see, uh, you know, a basket of ripe fruit, so I will do this, right? Or I see an almond branch. So it shall be that I will watch over my people to, uh, you know, uh, put them into captivity. Well, what is, what's the sense of that? Well, the Hebrew words are the same there with just a very slight variation. So it's a play on words. You see this, and I tell you this means this. So that's the idea here, is that he puts the white, the Lavan, in front of the flocks, and in that way he plunders Lavan. And I think that's really all that we're to take from it, not try to, is there some magic in these rods? Is there some magic in the fact of how he peeled them? And that's, that's not really the point. It's just, again, God is attending to cause this plundering to take place, but but this resource, uh, you know, in a sense, Levon be, Laban, Laban becomes his own undoing. He sought to exploit and, and to oppress his nephew, and he ends up losing all of his wealth in the process. So as he now spends 20 years in Haran, he acquires two wives, and actually I wrote 13, but 12 children, because the very last one who's born is born to Rachel, who is Benjamin, right? And that'll become a part of the Joseph story. But he's actually born after they leave. So 12 children, and he plunders his uncle's wealth. God had prospered the man Israel in his exile from the land and then delivered him from his oppressive servitude, carrying away all of his master's wealth. And even in a sense, through Rachel, the idols, Laban's household idols, get carried away. And in an interesting way, the way in which those things are carried away and Laban is stripped of his own, the objects of his idolatry, is Rachel hides them, but she, but she, they're under her saddle the you know the thing she's sitting on on the camel and she says i can't get up from the cam when he's in laban pursues him and he's inspecting trying to find out who stole these idols she says i'm in the way of women you know i can't stand up from from this camp and and so i think the text wants you to see that in a way these household idols that are precious are placed in this place of utter defilement 
you know, the menstrual time was a time of defilement in, in, in Israeli, uh, you know, under the law of Moses. So again, it, it's kind of the, these plays on these ideas. This is God's sentiment. He strips Laban of his household idols and he defiles them by, by putting them in the situation of, of, uh, you know, menstrual uncleanness. But that's kind of a side thing. But the point is, is that everything of value to Laban is taken. His daughters, his grandchildren, his idols, his flocks, his herds. And that episode of plundering the oppressor would prove to be prophetic as it was repeated in the experience of the nation of Israel, as promised all the way back with Jacob's grandfather with Abraham when the covenant was ratified. God had not forgotten his word to Abraham and he would yet fulfill it. And he's honoring that word with Jacob in a foreign land. He honors the covenant and the promises and he's with Jacob and he meets with him and he blesses him and he prospers him away from the covenant land. He's the God of his people, not the God of a place. So just some concluding observations then concerning this part of the the Jacob story. As I said, the first thing that we have to take from this is that the nature of God's dwelling with his people is shifted, not completely altered, but shifted somewhat. It's enlarged in that now God is pledging uh, a habitation that pertains to his people, not a particular place. God goes with Jacob. He is with him. He preserves him. He prospers him and brings him back to the covenant land. The second thing is that Bethel, as I said, is the focal point of Jacob's relationship with God. And it really epitomized sacred space in his experience, the, the place of divine human encounter, if you will, the place where heaven and earth come together. And in that sense, Bethel becomes a kind of prefiguration of the sanctuary, the tabernacle that Moses would build, and later even the the temple in Jerusalem, because the temple was regarded in the tabernacle as the place where heaven and earth came together. In a sense, the Jews spoke of God being enthroned in heaven, but the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies being the footstool of his feet. God spanned the the realm of heaven and the realm of earth through his own presence. He was enthroned between the wings of the cherubim. That's what sacred space is all about, is the, the bringing together of the heavenly realm and the earthly realm. So Bethel prefigured the Israelites' sanctuary, but it also became a powerful symbol of Israel's idolatry. If you read in 1 Kings 12 and 13, when Jeroboam, when God divided the kingdom between Rehoboam and Jeroboam, and and after that you have the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, ten tribes went with Rehoboam. And and I know I've said it before, but because under the law of Moses, all Israelites who could were required to go to Jerusalem three times a year, Passover, Pentecost, and um, tabernacles in the fall. And Jeroboam said, I don't want these Israelites now under my reign to go back to Jerusalem because that's the capital of Judah. That's where Rehoboam has his throne. And if my people are going down to Jerusalem three times a year, they're going to get sucked back in under the king of Judah and I'll lose my kingdom. So he solved that problem by saying, we're going to worship Yahweh here. I'm going to establish my own priesthood And I'm going to build places of worship at Dan and Bethel. And that became in in the scriptures, the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who led the sons of Israel into sin. And the northern kingdom was always idolatrous from the very beginning because they were worshiping God in a false place with a false priesthood 
engineered by a king who was concerned that he would lose his subjects. So Bethel became a symbol of Israel's idolatry and disobedience. That which it had represented the, uh, the sacred space, the place where God encountered his people, the bridge between heaven and earth, came to be a place of defilement and abuse. Israel's unfaithfulness defiled Bethel as sacred space, but one day its defining imagery would find its substance in the faithful Israelite who conjoins heaven and earth as God's incarnate sanctuary. And if you look in John's gospel, and if you recall when we studied through John, a central theme in John's gospel as he tells the story of Jesus as Israel's Messiah is that Jesus is the true sanctuary, In his prologue, he says, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of God, full of grace and truth. Well, that's Israelite temple language. Where did the glory of God reside? Inside of his sanctuary, right? But the word that is God became flesh and tabernacled among us he becomes the embodiment of that sanctuary and we beheld the true glory of God that is in him so John starts right out building that case and then you have um, also in in the identifying of the disciples as they begin to uh, come forward If you pick up in verse 43 of chapter 1, the next day he purposed to go forth into Galilee, and he found Philip, and Jesus said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida of the city of Andrew and Peter, and Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and all the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. We found the Messiah, is what he's saying. And Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Nazareth was kind of a low-life town, but also there was nothing about the Messiah and the scriptures coming out of Nazareth. Philip said to him, come and see for yourself. So Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no guile. One who is sincerely looking for truth. And Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered and said, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. You are the Messiah. And Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? I tell you, you shall see greater things than these. And he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you shall see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That's a reference back to the Bethel episode. Bethel represented the conjunction between heaven and earth, the angels of God ascending and descending and Yahweh standing at the top. And he says, you will see that reality fulfilled in me. It's just another example of how all the scriptures testify of Jesus. Bethel is a central theme in the Old Testament, initially as the place where heaven and earth come together. And then it becomes the place that is defiled because of Israel's unbelief and unfaithfulness. But yet, nonetheless, Bethel, that idea, will again become sacred space, this time in the Messiah himself. The one who is the conjoining of heaven and earth. And ultimately, we see in Revelation 21, John looks in a vision and he sees Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, right? He sees God's space and the earthly space coming together. Now the dwelling of God is with men. And that has found its substantial fulfillment in Jesus himself. He is the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And in that sense, he's a one-man counter-temple movement. He is the embodiment of the dwelling of God. And as the chief cornerstone, we become the dwelling of God in the spirit, right? See, these ideas are are built and developed through the Old Testament scriptures. These aren't just remote stories that have nothing to do with us. But we can't read them and say, oh, God blessed Jacob through the 
uh, shaved almond rods. So I'm going to go find a, a poplar branch and shave stripes in it. And then God will, you know, I'll put it in front of my bank book or something and God's going to increase my wealth. That's not how we use the scriptures. That's not how the promises of God work. But we see how all of these things played themselves out to ultimately find their fulfillment in Jesus himself. So when Paul says all of these things were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come, that's what he's talking about. And it's an important distinction in terms of how we read the Old Testament and see its relevance to us. It's the story of Israel which finds its climax in the Messiah who embodies Israel and is the Israelite in truth. And it's in and through that as we become the Israel of God in him, that these things become relevant to us. Well, next time then, Lord willing, we'll, we'll pick up with uh, Jacob's return back to the land, which brings us to chapter 32 and the episode at uh, Mahanaim, which becomes Peniel, the face of God, the encounter there. Um, and, and we'll deal with that. And then Jacob's time in Bethel. And then we'll move on to the Joseph story after that. Okay, let me pray. Father, I I pray that you will help each of us to understand these things. I, I have such a burden for us, for myself, that we will grow in our understanding of how the scriptures of the Old Testament, Israel's scriptures, speak to us, what they mean to us, how they are relevant to us what it means that Jesus is the one to whom all the law, the prophets, and the writings bore witness. And as those upon whom the ends of the ages have come, those who have come to know you truly in in Christ by the Spirit, I pray that you would help each one of us to be able to interact with these Old Testament scriptures back through the lens of the one who is the fulfillment of all that they present, all that they point to, all that they signify. That we would come to understand Israel's scriptures in the way that the apostles and the early witnesses of Jesus understood them as they went out into the world, not only amongst the Jews, but into the Gentile world showing from all the scriptures, the scriptures of the Old Testament, that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, the one that God had been promising from Eden, the one that he had been building the case for, the one in whom all of the scriptures become yes and amen. Father, give us understanding hearts and minds. Give us diligence. Give us tenacity in our own study, in our own reading. Help us to be truly disciples of the Lord Jesus, not simply those who have a confidence that we're saved, but those who earnestly and faithfully and tenaciously strive to grow up in all things into him who is the head, and that we would be ministers of that growth, that stewardship to one another, that that would be our longing in our interaction with one another, to see Christ formed in his people fully, that the world would know and understand his coming and what it means and what it's accomplished. Father, help us to be Christians indeed. And bless us even as we continue our time together today. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.